0: I think about rage as containing information, right? I talk about anger as a weather vane pointing you towards the places that need attention and healing. And so I think rage can be useful in that way of teaching you what needs change in your life. And it might be that you need more support or you need to not be in charge of bedtime every night or whatever. Rage is also useful in giving you the energy to create change larger, larger than just your little home.
1: I'm your host, Caitlin Salamini, and this is the Postpartum Production Podcast. Here, we hold conversations about the intersection of caregiving, creative practice, and capitalist production, as well as what it means to be producing art while also being a parent in modern society. Find out more at www.postpartumproduction.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Today here at the podcast, we are really excited to share with you a conversation with Minna Dubin. Minna and I had the great to meet by way of the Artist Residency and Motherhood group, which I've mentioned on the podcast in the past. And Min and I have actually met in person a number of times, and we've shared in retreat spaces and in working residencies. So I am particularly excited to share this conversation with you. Minna is the author of the book Mom Rage, The Everyday Crisis of Modern Motherhood, which is out from Seal Press this week. It's hitting shelves, so it's perfect timing to listen to this conversation, get excited about the ongoing conversation that she will be having about Mom Rage, and to read the book. Her writing has been featured in the New York Times, Salon, Parents, the Philadelphia Inquirer, Romper, the Forward, Hobart, Mother magazine and Literary Mama. She's the recipient of an Artist in Richmond Grant from the Kentucky Foundation for Women. As a leading feminist voice on Mom Rage, Minna has appeared on MSNBC, Good Morning America, The Tamron Hall Show, NBC Ten Boston, and NPR. She lives in Berkeley, California, with her husband, her two children, and no pets. She clarifies because, as she says, "Enough is enough." I couldn't agree more. I wish we didn't have the cat we had. No, I shouldn't say that. I I do love the cat. I swear. I love the cat. It is a lot to care for children and pets and partners and families. So (laughs) to that end, this conversation was illuminating, enlightening, relieving. So we hope that you enjoy it as much as we did. So, we're here to talk about your book. I'm excited to dig in and learn more about the process of the book for you, how you came to this book, but also in general, how you came to writing, because I don't know that that's something that is deeply investigated in this book. So, I'd love to hear more about that and your connection to you as a creative person as well, and the formats that you choose to be creative and what that means to you, because I think that's something that's really integral to this particular podcast. So what struck me actually, as I was reading was that it was slightly different than I expected in terms of format. It felt political, philosophical and practical to me. So it was like all of those things all at once. So I'd love to hear how you came to that structure.
2: Yeah,
0: I did not come to the structure through any sort of thoughtful nature. (laughs) I am definitely like a free writer. I'm someone who sits down at the computer and just writes until I get to the place that it needs to be. I write myself to the end. Originally, I thought that this book was going to be much more telling each mother's story. My Mm. first draft had like 10 page swaths of one single mother's story and then the next Mm -hmm. single mother's story. And they were all in italics. And my editor Mm. was just like, oh, no, (laughs) No one wants to read 10 pages of italics. (laughs) But I think I'm particularly fascinated by people and by people's stories. And I was, I don't know, I just didn't, I didn't quite have the vision of how the book would be. And so the structure of mixing in my story, mother's stories, and then making this philosophical argument. And Mm -hmm. also there's this self-help piece of Mm -hmm. how do you deal with your own rage in the Mm -hmm. home, regardless Mm -hmm. of the societal piece. Mm -hmm. It all just sort of came out organically. I did not Mm -hmm. have a grand structure. And I think that's why every chapter is a little bit different. It's Mm -hmm. not very formulaic. The middle three chapters are much more about my story and how I dealt with my rage in the home. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of the book is more from a societal perspective of Mm -hmm. how how this is society's fault, not the mom's fault. Mm-hmm. I'm really trying to balance both, mm-hmm. which is sort of a hard thing to do because I'm saying our rage is warranted. And then I'm also saying, eh, it's not really so great to be screaming in your home. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm trying to hold both and give mm-hmm. solutions as best I can for both. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. But mm-hmm. it still felt very important to me to hold on to story, both mine and the mom's. Like, even though I'd, I no longer have 10 pages of a mother's story in there, making sure that I highlighted both my story and the mom's stories felt really important because I feel like as a mom that's what you actually want to read. If you're a raging mom, is you want to mm-hmm. hear other moms' stories so that you see yourself. We all want to be seen mm-hmm. and and that felt important to me to provide.
1: Yeah, I liked that because I also felt that there were moments when we came back to a particular story and then it added nuance to that story, right? Or there was an additional point or plot point for that particular Individual's story. And I, I really connected with that, too. And I'm really impressed that you didn't have the structure in place, but that it came about organically, because it really works. So you're balancing a lot at once, but you did it.
2: (laughs) You definitely did (laughs) it successfully.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, I I think I felt pressure, because there isn't a book like this about mom Mm -hmm. rage. And I just felt like, It needed to do all the things and Mm. I wanted it to do all the things. And so I did have a very big task in front of me. So Mm. thanks for saying that.
1: (laughs) Is this the book that you felt like you needed as a person going through this experience?
0: You mean, do I wish I had this book Mm -hmm. like eight years ago? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I wish I had this book. Mm. Yeah. I think it would have provided me a lot of relief and maybe would have put a pin in the balloon of my self-hatred somewhat. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: So I have a question. This is more personal. (laughs) So I remember one of our retreats, I think you said to me, you were like, you don't seem like you're someone who rages, which I felt like was funny because I'm like, oh, wow, then you don't know me. Or I'm masking really well in this moment. And at the same time, I think it also made me personally think a little bit about what is my rage and how that looks different. And people rage differently and they rage at different entities. Mm -hmm. Maybe we don't all rage at our children. I definitely rage at my partner way more Mm -hmm. than I rage at my children. It somehow feels more allowable and maybe he can take it better, although he'll argue probably that he shouldn't be, which is fair as well. Mm -hmm. It was a nice moment. And I think the book as well for me personally was a moment of, as I think it would be for all readers, of doing that work and investigating and trying to understand your own triggers. Because I loved that when you talked about, for example, the basement and how we act above the basement, whether it's the kitchen or whatever room we're in, but how the basement is informing us. Is that something that you came to through therapy or your own work or through this book? Where did that structure itself come from?
0: I really came to it through writing the book. So you're talking about the first chapter, which is mm-hmm. called The House of Mom Rage. And I basically use the metaphor of upstairs mom range, which I think I call kitchen mm-hmm. mom rage, which is... The, the surface of mom rage, it's like what mom rage looks like. A kid spills a bowl of Cheerios and we blow a gasket, right? And so it looks like, wow, she has an anger problem because she's screaming over spilled Cheerios. Mm-hmm. Relax, mom. Mm-hmm. And then there's basement mom rage, which is like all of the stuff that's happening the hour before, the day before, the week before, and the lifetime before, right? Like our trauma is in their patriarchy is in their race and class, like everything's in there that's, that's informing that moment including the husband maybe being at work early every day and her having to do the morning work by Mm -hmm. herself every day. Yeah, so I came to that metaphor writing the book. I think I'm a visual thinker, Mm -hmm. and so I needed the visual somehow for me of the basement versus upstairs in the kitchen. Mm. That was how I could conceive of these two different parts of mom rage. Mm. And it was definitely a struggle in the, it it was a question in the editing process of whether I should nix this metaphor. Mm. (laughs) But I refused to give it away because I I find it useful for me. So I figure if I find it useful, other moms are gonna find it useful.
2: Mm
1: Yeah, I found it very useful. And I think that obviously it can mean very different things. So I think that it's such a nice container. I was also curious, as you wrote this book and in your process, as you wrestled, and I think that you do a really good job of wrestling with this yourself in the book, but with your privileges, what you hold, and how that has impacted your process versus what each individual mother that you also focus on in the book, but also in general comes to this with such a different history and how to hold that and how to hold space for that and how to investigate that. I was really impressed with how you were able to do that. If you wanted to speak about your process or how you came to be able to do that, I think really mindfully and thoughtfully in this book.
0: Thanks. It felt very important to me to move away from my story in this book and Mm -hmm. to use other mothers also to show that mom rage affects mothers from all different backgrounds Mm -hmm. and even nationalities, which is why I interviewed Mm -hmm. moms from other countries. And I think that in terms of like, thank you for saying that I did it well, but I think part of it is that before I wrote about motherhood for 15 years or something, I wrote about identity, not Mm -hmm. motherhood specific. So I wrote about race and class and gender and Mm -hmm. sexuality and religion, all, all of the things, right. That give and take away social power. And, and I studied race and ethnicity and post-colonialism mm. in writing memoir
2: mm. in college,
0: right? So this is my background. Mm. And so I have been obsessed with identity and the way that it is secretly working underneath everything that's happening, every conversation, mm. every relationship, romantic and platonic.
2: Mm. And
0: so that's my background of, of work. That's what I've been writing about forever. And so mm. in a way, this is just a continuation of that. It's just specifically about motherhood. Hmm. You do
1: a really great job of highlighting that. I think you talk about the individual and the institution and how the interplay of both come to highlight where rage and power structures intersect. That to me also, again, there's this alleviating feeling of okay, this isn't just about me and what I'm feeling, but it's about what I'm carrying with me into this moment. Like you say, and that's why I love the basement. I'm so glad you kept the basement metaphor because I think those are foundational things that we are handed at birth and before birth, right? So whoever we are, that's what we come into motherhood with. And so to ignore that would be to do a huge disservice to how we Interact with others on a daily basis, so I really appreciated that. But you even mentioned you said there's one moment where you said, the rules are designed for me to fail. Was that background that you had? did that inform you as a person sitting with your rage, or was that something that the writing itself gave you? Like where did you come to conceptualize and and how did that really make you feel like in your body? Does that work? Does it alleviate the stress, or like how does it really change you on a daily basis? I'm curious how it changes your relationships with your children, with your partner?
0: I think I came to it through writing this book because I don't have a background in motherhood studies, Mm. but I think that being a motherhood and being someone who thinks a lot about identity and interactions and then writing about it, because I think I do a lot of my processing through writing, got Mm. me to the place and all the research that I did for this book of realizing that modern motherhood is a setup for anger. Which is one of the theses, I think, of this book. Mm -hmm. I don't know that it actually impacts my relationship with my children. Knowing that, I don't know that it impacts my relationship with my children or my husband. It is one thing to understand something intellectually, and it is Mm -hmm. another thing to have that impact your actions. Mm -hmm. I'm still upstairs in the kitchen with mom Mm -hmm. rage sometimes. When I get frustrated about something, I'm not. I'm not constantly like doing the social overlay in my head. Rage is so quick. Mm. We're not always there that we can be like, mm-hmm. I'm getting upset because you're being disrespectful and my patriarchy triggers getting zinged. <laughs> you know? Like that's the ideal, right? That's that's what I hope that everyone can get to, but that's a real challenge. And even though I know it intellectually, I don't always do it.
1: And also rage, as you say, is so necessary especially in a political environment, that for me, sometimes I feel a lot of rage towards those structures. And sometimes that can be useful. And sometimes it can be really, it can just feel like you're that one person raging against the structure, right? And so how do you find community when you have such a clear understanding now of those structures and how they impact your experience of motherhood?
0: I think about rage as containing information, right? I talk Mm -hmm. about anger as a weather vane pointing you towards the places that need attention and healing. Mm. And so I think rage can be useful in that way of teaching you what needs change in your life. And it might be that you need more support or you need Mm -hmm. to not be in charge of bedtime every night or whatever. Rage is also useful in giving you the energy to create change Mm -hmm. larger, larger than just your little home. But if you want to get involved in whatever, to create whatever Mm -hmm. change you want, whether it's Mm -hmm. in your school system or on your block, Mm -hmm. getting more community involved. Mm -hmm. In terms of if my rage has helped me to get community, on a smaller scale, I think having mom friends has been just Mm -hmm. wildly important, specifically mom friends who I can talk to about this. And that's Mm -hmm. taken some time because I think it takes a very long time to figure out at first you get mom friends who are like, oh, well, they had babies at the same time. So Mm -hmm. you guys all hang out together because it's super convenient and you're a mess. But your mom friends change over time Mm
2: -hmm.
0: as your kids grow up and they get Mm -hmm. friends. And it's Mm -hmm. like, oh, do you like those friends' mothers? Mm -hmm. And then the kids have playdates without you needing to be there. The mom friends dynamic just shifts over time because my oldest Mm -hmm. is 10 now. But anyway, I would just say that finding the friends who actually you can send that text to when you are losing your mind is super Mm -hmm. important for me. And I absolutely love getting those texts from my friends.
2: Mm-hmm. It is,
0: it just, I, I feel like it's like a balm to me when I get to support a friend who's like, I want to whatever they, you know, mm-hmm, whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then in terms of a larger community, I feel like this work has brought me community online, basically. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely feed off of the conversation that happens when I publish articles about it or when Mm -hmm. I post stuff about mom rage, there's definitely a feedback loop that happens and that feels really good. It's, it's a different kind of community. Internet community is different than Mm -hmm. texting your friend, but Mm -hmm. it's still really great.
1: Mm. Let's talk about that for a second because you were doing work with lists and then wrote an essay and then wrote this book. So I'm curious about that process and how you made the choice to even to write the essay. Like yeah. where that came from. But in terms of the formats that your creative work takes, I'd love to hear more about that as well.
0: Yeah. I'm historically a memoirist, an essayist, and a monologuist. And then after I became a mom, writing was really hard. I was with my kid a lot. There's just no, there's no brain space, there's no time mm-hmm. space. And when my older kid was 2, I put him in longer days of preschool and started sending myself to cafes and sitting down with Mm -hmm. the blank page. And all I could come up with basically was lists because that's like all I do in motherhood, I feel like is make Mm -hmm. lists, grocery lists and to do lists. And that just felt like the format I could, I could manage Mm -hmm. at that time. And so I started making lists about motherhood, like ways I was productive when my kid was at daycare today, to things I say to my husband in the night, I mean, whatever. (laughs) And then I needed to do something physical with my hands so I would write the list on the computer and then I would hand write them on these five by seven cards and then cut a pretty piece of decorative paper Mm -hmm. the same size and sew them together at the top with bookbinding thread and then Mm -hmm. tie a ribbon to them so they would hang so you'd have to lift the exterior Mm -hmm. and underneath would be this gritty list. And I hung them in public places around the Bay Area. I did it for three years. I did 150 mm. of them. And they're beautiful. Wow. Like, they're, they're physically beautiful. Anyway, so one of them was called something like a street scene or something. And that was this moment that I described in the first chapter of the book of this rage moment that I had with my kid that really, really scared me. It was the first moment I remember where I was like, I'm afraid of myself a little bit. Mm. So I had this list. And a lot of people responded to this list, like the list got a big response. And so that was my first moment of, I can talk about this really scary thing and people know exactly what I'm talking about, which Mm. I didn't know that anyone, it was scary to put that list out. And then I wrote an essay. I elongated that list into this essay because I put the lists together. I made a book that never got published of these lists. And then I added essays to them. So there's like 10 essays for this book mm. that lives on my hard drive. And one of those essays <laughs> was the Rage essay that got published in the New York Times called The Rage mm. Mothers Don't Talk About. That's what they titled it. And I, it got into there because Jessica Gross, who was, she was the lead editor of, of the parenting section. It was a new section. And she had put a, a call out basically being mm. like, I'm looking for the hard stories of motherhood. And mm-hmm. I saw that and I was like, oh, I have a hard story <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and got it into her hands and she published it. And basically the rest is history. Mm-hmm. And that, that essay is basically the reason why I have this book.
2: Mm-hmm. Hmm.
1: Here's a hard question, or maybe yeah. not. Are there any other lists or essays that, like you said, this one was published and that was the book? Is there something else that you're like, oh, I wish that one, could I write about that?
0: At some point, there's part of me that's like, oh, I should probably go back to those essays Mm -hmm. and edit them and try and make them their best version Mm -hmm. and try and publish them. Because I think they're all really good. Mm -hmm. But no, I don't have another one that I wish I wrote a book about that topic. Mm -mm. I didn't want to write a book about this topic. It's just (laughs) (laughs) I I wrote a a book about all of motherhood. I didn't Mm. write Mom Rage, I didn't have some like burning desire to write a Mom Rage book. Mm-hmm. But it seemed that from the response I got from the New York Times mm-hmm. pieces, it seemed that this was the book that the world needed. Mm-hmm. And, and it did seem like, well, if someone's going to write the book, it might as well be me.
2: Your essay came out before the pandemic, right?
0: It came out before the pandemic and then was republished during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: And I think people were at their bare minimum in motherhood and yeah, feeling the big feelings even more so.
0: For sure. And then I started getting all of these emails from moms in the pandemic, even though the essay had been published like six months before. And so then I realized that mom rage was like, at, at a peak during, mm. because of the pandemic. And so then I pitched New York Times Parenting. We need to write about mom rage in a pandemic. Like this is a whole nother mm. thing. Mm. And so that's how the second piece in the New York Times came about. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It was sort of simultaneous. Like I started getting all these these emails and then they just republished the same article.
1: Gotcha. Okay.
0: They republished it in April. And then in July, I published Not an essay, but a reported article where I interviewed people about Mm. what their experience was like with mom rage in the pandemic. So they're Mm. separate things.
1: Gotcha. And then, when did the book contract come about?
0: Almost immediately after the July 2020 reported article Mm. in the New York Times, agents started reaching out to me saying, "Do you want to write a book?" And then I, I ended up picking one who I really liked, and I felt like understood exactly what i was doing mm. and writing about and we worked on the proposal for six months and then in the beginning of 2021 we sent out the proposal and then by oh, wow. that spring we had a deal with seal press
1: so then you wrote it within i had one year? year
0: to write that book wow and wow. i definitely took longer than that <laughs> i took more like two years or no, something no or... really no no Uh, I really started in June, 2021 and I turned in the final draft, December, 2022. So a year and a half. Okay. I wrote the book in a year and a half.
1: That's a, that's really impressive. It's a lot. All the interviews of the individuals that you cite in the year and 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 you felt, yeah, that's a lot.
0: It was a lot. I was crazy. I've been crazy. I like stopped parenting. (laughs) I was going to say, and your children were how old? <laughs> My daughter was three when the pandemic started. She was in preschool. Okay. How old are they now? Now they are six and ten. Now they're school aged. Okay. Yeah. But it was uh, it was a lot and I definitely stepped down from being the primary parent during writing this book.
2: Hmm.
1: Well, you were writing a book. That's right. You were doing outside of the homework and so it was work that needed your attention at that time in a different yeah. way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you mentioned this. In the book about other models for motherhood outside of the US. So, for example, you talk about Iceland and the Red Stockings, which I absolutely loved because I actually have this personal connection to Iceland. So, I had Icelandic au pairs as a kid. Uh And I always just was fascinated by Iceland having a female president, for example. Like when I was young, like, wait, what? This is awesome. It felt like this model of humanity that was different. And also in Iceland, I don't know if you know this. I was also really fascinated that families tend to form and the family structure is very in some ways different than it is here in that people tend to partner and have a child very young, I'd say, compared to what is the average even in the U.S., probably around I don't know what their average is, but it felt like everyone I knew had children at 20, 21, 22, Mm. didn't get married. And would either get married to that partner later or may not stay with that partner. And interestingly, I don't know if you say it in this book or if I saw it elsewhere, that the divorce rate in Iceland is quite low. Although I was talking to – we actually have an Icelandic friend here right now with us for a few months. And I was talking to her about it. And I was like, but maybe that's not accurate because maybe people just don't get married. So then, the divorce. Do you see what I'm That's saying? For so the yeah. divorce rate, That's wouldn't not catch. From my book. Yeah. yeah, I know. Okay. Well, anyways, I'm really curious. Also, when we look at those structural components, to look at other societies and say, how does this impact the individual experiences of motherhood when you have these structures? What did you see in your work that felt hopeful? Are there ways that we can model that in the U.S.? Are there lessons we can draw and what does that look like or is that not applicable in American society I
0: don't talk about Iceland in terms of the ways like the example of the mother in terms of the structure of the family I was Mm. like specifically talking about the the women's day off strike Mm -hmm. the examples I use of other countries are mostly indigenous communities I think Mm. and in America I think it's different just because it's a very different society here in America, I think that we do uh, have different communities that look at motherhood outside of the mainstream or deal with motherhood outside of the mainstream. And the three that I briefly highlight in the book are queer families, Black families, and polyamorous families. And, and not necessarily that any of those three have a different motherhood structure, but that it's more common. hmm based on their histories and some of it is like resiliency from oppression mm-hmm. and some of it is culture and in the polyamorous woman that I interviewed it was about just having more actually with all of them it's about it's really about having more support right there's mm-hmm. the mother it can be less primary because there's so many other support people to mm-hmm. help hold and take care of the children mm-hmm. if you like take the mother off the throne as the nurturer. Then there's room for grandma and auntie, a mm-hmm. best friend and whoever, boyfriend and boyfriend's wife.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And as you're saying that, I was thinking that, and I think it's underlying what you're saying, is that mother as a title, and you even talk about this a little bit in your book, especially in the, the U.S., implies a particular relationship and responsibility where mothering as a verb yeah, is something that others can do. And you can form really important attachments as a child to other caregivers that are giving you something that your own, whether it's biological, foster, adoptive, for whatever reason, the person that you call mother couldn't give you. And that's okay that that person can't give you that, right? But yeah, I love that moment in the book when you talk about, I think you're at the doctor's office or something, and they say, mom, and you're like, what? <laughs> and you're only mom. I have a dentist that calls and always calls. It's like, oh, hey, mom. And I'm just like, I have a name. Like, you have my name. Why are you?
0: It's right there. Also, why
1: are you even you. assuming? You're assuming that I'm the mother of that ch- child, but you don't know, just because I'm the parent number one or contact number one?
0: Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I think I talk about it in the prologue because I'm, tr- I'm talking about gender and how I'm thinking about gender and who mm-hmm. this book is for. Mm-hmm. And I'm yeah, I'm saying that mothering is about about the work and that anyone can actually mother but also that gender is not divorced from mom rage that there is this mm-hmm. misogyny and sexism part that makes mom rage happen and so I use she her pronouns in the book even though I'm talking to anyone who mothers whether that's a grandmother or mm-hmm. someone who's masculine identified or non-binary yeah
2: mm-hmm.
1: a couple of months ago I interviewed a professor at Notre Dame, who wrote a book a lot about alloparenting and animal Mm -hmm. societies. So her Uh name is Darsha Narvaez. And prior to reading your book, but also early on in my motherhood journey, I read a lot of books that looked at communal care, that looked at alloparenting. And I think that's why that helped to give me the foundation of this rage that I feel is because this isn't even biologically how we are meant to raise children, right? So when I took that off of my back, it helped me to not necessarily not feel that rage in that moment, but also just not beat myself up in the work that you were talking about in your book, right? About that shame spiral and about how we feel when we feel alone in that rage.
0: Yeah, and we get so isolated in America because there's so Mm -hmm. much emphasis on the nuclear family. And then if you're in a nuclear family and there's only two of you, Mm -hmm. And one of them, especially in different sex relationships, if one of them is a father, the labor just falls on you and you're just so isolated. The way that we do family in America, it not only puts all the labor on the mom, but it puts all the labor on the mom and she's alone.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. As our friend Patty would say, why do you think that is?
2: (laughs) We know why that
0: is. (laughs) Who does that serve? Right.
2: (laughs)
1: I hate to put this on you, but what is the future of this work? This isn't a mom rage moment. This is something that has lived in different iterations throughout history. But in this moment, what is the future in the US? What do you see as possible? What do you see as problematic?
0: You know, I try to also look at the past with some hope when policies have been passed, and then we lost them, that mm-hmm. to not look at it as everything is going down the tubes for abortion mm-hmm. or during World War II when there were all of these government funded daycares and nurseries mm-hmm. so that the women could work in factories and they were like six days a week all day long and they fed the children and it was like a few dollars a day. And also with Biden's Build Back Better plan mm-hmm. and the, the child tax credit, even though these have been wins and then became losses because mm-hmm. we lost them, they're blueprints that we still get to use for how to do it or how to do it better moving forward. Mm -hmm. If it's been done, it means it can be done again. And so I think it's both, we need all these policies. And I think we're getting closer. I feel like the conversation around motherhood is so much more present and it's possible that that's because I'm a mother and I'm keyed into it, but I don't think so in terms of family leave and paid family leave. I just feel like that is a fight. Like the fact that Senator Warren, that was like one of her, platforms was around family leave and preschool. I just feel like it's happening. And it's happening slowly. It's happening state by state. But that's how things happen in America is they happen state by state Mm -hmm. and then they go federal. Mm -hmm. And universal childcare is happening state by state. Mm -hmm. It's slow, but it's happening. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. I think that we are on a slow but positive upwards trajectory around some mother care policies like paid family leave and universal preschool. But I also think that like Iceland's Women's Day Off, Mm. we also have an incredible amount of power Mm -hmm. and we could be using it in different ways Mm -hmm. if we figured out how to organize ourselves. In that day, I remember reading about it and just being so amazed because every woman said, I'm not going to work that day and I'm not taking care of the children. And they left the house. (laughs) And I think I write it in the book that the men went to work and they had to take the children because there was nobody to watch the children. There was no school. The teachers Mm -hmm. weren't teaching. And on the news reports, you could hear the kids yammering and running around in the background (laughs) because there was nothing like, where were the kids going to go? They had to go with the dad to Mm -hmm. work. And I just think we could just say no. I mean, it's more complicated than that. And there's definitely a lot of class issues around like, Mm -hmm. I can't take the day off my job. But if there was a great organizing effort, I just feel like we have an immense amount of power. Mm -hmm. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: I've seen attempts at that via social media. I understand some of the structural constraints, but uh, as a whole, in terms of those who have the privileges and abilities to say no. Is there something that's just so individualistic in this country that we- Why is it
0: not happening?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, I I don't know. I think it's very hard to to do that. I think it can happen. I think it will happen. There's also so many people doing, and organizations Mm -hmm. that are already doing this work, like the National Domestic Workers Alliance, Mm -hmm. because we're talking about motherhood, but then there's also all of the domestic workers that are Mm -hmm. doing the same invisible in-home labor and care work that are mostly- Women of color and immigrants who are getting paid such a little mm-hmm. amount of money. And it's the same fight. It's just about mm-hmm. recognizing and taking care of our people who are doing care work. Mm-hmm. And so they're doing amazing work. There are organizations who are doing the work. I just, I think it's a slow moving process.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for giving me some hope because I often feel really frustrated. And I feel like, yeah, it's hard to see that incremental change, but you're right, it is there. Even in California, here in the Bay, my child has been able to benefit from free TK. Right. Yes, right. it's not all childcare, but it's that first step, like you said. Right.
0: In California, no. four-year-olds, it's slowly moving mm-hmm. where every year, three yep. months earlier if yep. your birthday, you get to go if you're four. Mm-hmm. My mm-hmm. daughter missed it. But but um. yeah, it is, it is happening. It is slowly right. happening, for sure. And it's also happening in the home generationally. Mm-hmm. If I look at the sort of work that my husband does in the home Mm -hmm. and even though I am very very close with my father and he is an amazing father and incredibly loving and he did the laundry that was his job and he did the trash and he did so much more I'm sure but he never cooked a day in his life Mm -hmm. when I look at my home versus the one I grew up with in terms of gender and labor it is much more equal in my home than it was in the one I grew up with in Mm -hmm. and I, I think that that's not a small thing because we're modeling that for the next generation like mm-hmm. it is mm-hmm. labor is happening and and I don't think that that's happening necessarily across the country as like everyone's doing that but I do think that there's change
1: mhm and I think to your point though I'm curious about and you talk about it in the book too but about the invisible labor that your partner is doing that I'm guessing that generations before did not happen in those heteronormative relationships so I think That's critical, too. And I think that's the push where even I personally have to do a lot of work to ensure that to happen in my relationship, because for some reason that right, that's the most uncomfortable space. The visible labor is, I feel like, easier. Yeah. For a partner.
0: Yeah. I just had an interesting conversation this morning. I was asking, does our son need to bring his cello home because his cello is at school? And I mean, he has he barely he didn't practice his cello all summer. I don't think he actually cares that much about it. And I I mean, he's in fifth grade. Like, I don't care that much about it either. And he can do whatever he wants in my mind. But my husband was like, yeah, he has to bring it home. They said in the email that he has to practice two to three times a week. And I go, what email? And I go, I didn't get an email. And he was like, if I was you, you would be saying, why aren't you getting the emails? (laughs) And I go, well, I do want to know that. Why am I not getting the emails? Can you forward it to me and then I'll ask to be put on the email? Or do you just want to do the labor of every time you get an email telling Mm -hmm. me what the email says? Mm -hmm. Like I gave him the choice because that's how it's usually flipped, right? Mm -hmm. I usually tell him what the email says. And he was like, I don't want to do that. And I was like, great, well, forward me the email and I'll get myself on the list.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) But it was just so interesting to have it flipped for him Mm -hmm. to have the info and me to not have the info. And I felt like even though it's just this tiniest moment in time, It is indicative of the ways that our marriage and labor split has shifted over the last few years. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. And you highlight this in the book a lot, but it's so exhausting, as I'm sure many listeners will agree, to hold all of that. The invisible labor is, for me, is just the part that's so exhausting. It's the thinking, it's the planning, it's the lists, as you say. So how to Shift that I think is really critical to me. I feel like that's even more critical than the laundry or the trash or the cooking. It's that constant running.
0: Who's thinking about three months yeah. ahead and the doctor right. and summer right. camp and, and the set sa- exactly?
1: Yeah, yeah. And the signups and the this and do they have that and did they bring the jacket or did they not? Do they have the emergency kit? Who signed the forms? Did they do the vaccines? Like, I could go right. on.
0: Right. Is their name and their sweatshirt, did, they, did right. you remind oh, them to ask the guy at the bus about his sweatshirt that he left there yesterday?
1: Right. Sometimes I'm just like, I'm not do. I'm just not going to do it. I'm just not going to do it and see what happens. But then there are also the things that you can't not do because they're unsafe, right? So it's the balance of like, what are the things that you could not do and get away with? And what are the things you cannot do? and
0: Right. But it's complicated because if you say, I'm not going to do it, you have to be okay with it not getting done. Right. Or not getting done to your satisfaction.
1: Right. Yeah. I know you talk in the book about parenting a child with sensory processing disorder, about parenting neurodivergent children. If you could talk a little bit more about that, because obviously there's a lot of interplay with the rage, but also with support and with structures and with society's support for neurodivergent children in general. So I was curious about how you decided also to include that. I know obviously it's memoir, but how to do that appropriately in this book as well.
0: Yeah it felt super important to include it because I felt like a lot of my rage was related to it Mm. to some degree. A, because I was just so flabbergasted at my kid's behavior and Mm. not knowing how to handle it and feeling incredibly unprepared for like, Mm. how do I deal with these behaviors that I don't understand in any way? Mm. And two, it was just the total societal lack of support around it. He was kicked out of like preschool after preschool and no one said, Hey, you should get this kid evaluated. There might be something else going on here. Nobody said that to me. It didn't occur to me. Mm. (laughs) And then, just like what a blind path I felt like I was on. Mm. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know, okay, I have to get him evaluated. I didn't know that I could actually have the school evaluate him. Starting Mm. at age three, the public school can evaluate your kid Mm. for an IEP. And if they get Mm. it, then they can go to public preschool run by a special ed teacher. I just think of how many thousands of dollars we could have saved and how he could have been getting support Mm. so many years earlier. It's Mm. just mind boggling. And then just navigating the public school system and the IEPs and then health insurance. Like part of my rage was how much time it took. Mm. I was taking him to so many specialists. I was getting him evaluated by so many people. And I was on the phone with health insurance fighting for them to cover these specialists. Mm for what felt like half my day every day for two years. Mm. It was so maddening. And I just felt like my problem is the problem of the wealthy because mm-hmm. who has time to do that? Mm-hmm. I was lucky that my job was mothering and writing and I could just not write, right? Like mm-hmm. I could just throw my career away for a couple of years and focus on getting him mm-hmm. the care he needed. But it was, it, it makes me mad now to talk mm-hmm. about it, how mm-hmm. there's no setup for parents trying mm-hmm. to get support for their kids if they're not neurotypical.
1: As you were talking, I just thought how it, as in all things in capitalist societies, falls on the individual to, to manage, or it's your, it's your fault. We as a society, as a community don't say, how can we support you? How can, whether it's that preschool saying, gosh, this doesn't feel right. What can I do to provide the accurate resources for you? Right.
0: Motherhood is so much labor in general. And so this is this added, unbelievable amount of labor. Once my son got into public school, into elementary mm-hmm. school, I also noticed, which I read about in the book about the PTA and room parents, that all mm-hmm. the people doing that labor also had kids who they felt like needed extra support. One mom is the mom of Asian kids, and it was during the pandemic, and there was all this racism about the coronavirus Mm -hmm. during that time. And so it was about getting structures in place when racist comments get said, Mm -hmm. like, how is Mm the school district going to handle this? Mm -hmm. So she was taking care of her kids who the society wasn't supporting. And then Mm -hmm. another one was a mom of a a son who has dyslexia. And so Mm -hmm. she's on the PTA, and it's all about literacy programs. Everyone is just, I just feel like moms are doing so much work because the society has disinvested from families.
2: Mm Mm-hmm
0: that's my spiel. (laughs) And yet there's hope. And yet (laughs) yet there's hope. (laughs)
2: Because I'm like, where's the hope?
0: Yeah. My, my kid is getting, I I don't know, I guess is getting the support he needs. And, Mm -hmm. but I, it is really, it is really on parents. Mm -hmm. It is just, yeah. But, but the awareness about neurodivergency and all of it is much more than it was 10 years ago. So.
1: Right. Right. And being able to name that and then also to support and to have a child that can also name that and also, in some ways, I think there's such more celebration of neurodivergence and hopefully allows children going through that experience to not, I think when we grew up especially, there was such a behavioralist approach to childcare and to education that that shift can look at children as individuals in a much different way, right? It's very hard to behave as a child in structures that are not at all humane to normal so that, childhood that aren't, development. aren't
0: set up for you and with people who don't understand you. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and I think it, it, there's a hypervigilance that I experienced for a very long time of, are they treating mm-hmm. him right? Like, do mm-hmm. they understand him? Is this mm-hmm. being seen as a behavior issue? Is mm-hmm. it a behavior issue? Is mm-hmm. it that? It's a lot to navigate.
2: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, but I think similar in that sense to the basement and the kitchen metaphor and mom rage, I think there's so much of that in neurodivergence, but even in education, who is that individual? What do they take with them into that moment that is not about, oh, your kid isn't sitting still at circle time, right? But that has a lot of other factors that are leading to that moment of the expectation of even having to sit still. At circle or
0: whatever it is. Totally, totally. They're like, your kid is hiding under the train table every time it's circle time. <laughs> I'm like, oh, why do you think that is? I mean, we, I didn't <laughs> know, but now I know. It was so overwhelming when everyone would come into mm-hmm. the circle and mill around and there was so much mm-hmm. noise and he was just like, ah. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. I had my daughter in an environment that I later realized was just not a good place for her. And once we switched, her whole demeanor changed. It was just mm-hmm. like, oh, okay, environment does play a role. Especially yeah. for certain children who can't shift. They they need a different structure or setting. You quote early on in the book, uh, a Rebecca Solnit quote she wrote, liberation is always in part a storytelling process. Breaking stories, breaking silences, making new stories. I'd love to hear about that. And especially in your vulnerability in this process, because I found that really compelling And as you sit with this book, as it is about to come out in the world and be such a public
0: piece, how are you feeling? (laughs) When you said that, I got goosebumps. (laughs) I'm mostly feeling really excited. I'm not thinking about it too much because I don't want to be disappointed, I think. Mm. I think as a writer who's having a first book come out, it's like, will anybody read it? Will anybody care? (laughs) But I feel very excited for people to hear the stories and to feel some freedom or empowerment to either tell their own story or make some changes in their lives. And I think that I love that quote because I do think Mm -hmm. that storytelling is liberatory or has Mm -hmm. the potential anyway to be liberatory. And I think that the, the work I do, my writing is creative writing. Like I really do identify as a creative writer, but I think this book is particularly political. And so mm. in my best case scenario, this book is a piece of liberation and mm. I hope it gets seen that way.
1: How was it for you individually? How did it liberate you if you were to frame it in that way?
0: When I wrote that first essay, I didn't even have the societal overlay piece in my head. I didn't even Mm -hmm. understand that mom rage was anything besides me being terrible. So (laughs) I feel like I have liberated myself along with the help of all of the mothers I've talked to, Mm -hmm. that their stories really have helped to make me understand that this is just so, so, so much bigger than my little self and my little house, that there's this huge thing happening. And so I feel like writing the book, not completely, because I think I'm naturally lean towards self-hatred, but like, (laughs) has freed me in many ways from even more. Mm. Yeah.
1: So do I dare ask what's next? Do you want uh, to think that I, far ahead yet? No,
0: I know what's next. I just haven't, I feel like I just can't get there because I'm. my head is so in this book and I'm just, yeah. I think hopefully in, in a couple months I'll get back to it. But the next book is a novel, actually. I'm going to try mm-hmm. my hand at fiction and it is a very sexy novel. Good. Yeah. <laughs> and the, and the, I thought the character wasn't going to be a mom for a long time, but I think she has to be. I don't know how to write it if it's yeah. not a mom. So I think she's going to be a mom.
1: Well, fun. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you, Minna. And I'm so excited that when this conversation comes out, listeners can become readers and become supporters. So is there anything specifically that you want to share in terms of how to connect or what resources you would offer to a listener?
0: Oh, sure. You should buy the book. It's anywhere you want. (laughs) I mean, I did the audiobook. So I would also for any listeners who prefer to listen, since you're listening to this podcast, I recommend the audiobook as well. And you can find me on Instagram at my full name, Minna Dubin. Yeah, that's it. Awesome. I'm happy to do your book clubs and whatever. Contact me. <laughs> Info's on the website, minadubin.com.
1: Oh, fun. Yeah. Oh, I like that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Minna.
0: Yeah, thank you.
1: I'm your host, Caitlin Salamini, and this is the Postpartum Production Podcast. If you like what you've heard today, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating, which will help us reach more listeners like you. For regular updates, visit our website, www.postpartumproduction.com. Follow us on Instagram at postpartumproductionpodcast and subscribe to our Substack newsletter. Thank you for listening today and being a valuable part of this community of caregivers and artists who are redefining the work that we do and pushing forward with a new system in which art and caregiving are increasingly valued and supported.